0: Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Barbara White Bryson to talk about her book, Creating a Culture of Predictable Outcomes, How Leadership, Collaboration, and Decision-Making Drive Architecture and Construction. Barbara White Bryson recently retired as Associate Dean for Research and Director of the Drackman Institute at the College of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape Architecture at the University of Arizona, where she also served as Vice President of Strategic Planning and Analysis. Barbara, thank you very much for being here with me today, and welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
1: Well, Brian, I'm I'm happy to, I have to warn you that uh, my background can best be described as eclectic, both in education and in experience. I'm an architect by original education and training. Uh, I went to Georgia Tech and University of Texas Arlington and that education led me to nearly two decades of practice uh, in large firms. Uh, on large projects, mostly focused on project management of corporate centers, data centers, hospitals, and airports. Uh, During a few of those projects, I was exposed to something at that time, this is decades ago, called process improvement. uh, And that caught my attention. Uh, Later, I became interested in both higher education and The owner's needs, which started me on another two decade journey in higher education facilities, construction planning, and strategic planning. I'm most proud of the time that I spent at Rice University, where I oversaw about $1.4 billion in construction over 14 years as Associate Vice President of Facilities Planning and Construction, all of which came in on budget and on time. After two decades and multiple roles in higher education leadership, I also gathered an MBA from the University of Miami and a doctorate in higher education management from the University of Pennsylvania. Both expanded my ability to understand the needs of the academic owner uh, and also gave me some insight regarding research and the benefits of research. And during those decades, I also wrote a book about what we accomplished at Rice University. It was called The Owner's Dilemma. I wrote it with John and Yetman, and I also taught a class at Rice. And this is an important, uh, an important inspiration for me. It was at the School of Architecture and the Jesse Jones School of Business, uh, and it was on innovation in the design and construction industries. Finally, as you mentioned, I finished my higher education career at the University of Arizona at the College of Architecture, Planning and Landscape Architecture. And uh, now I'm going to continue to uh, do consulting and writing um, across uh, disciplines, across our architecture and design disciplines, and and, uh, hope to benefit the industry.
0: Very interesting. So
1: at one point, I
0: want to return to, you know, there's a reason I chuckled and laughed hardest at the part of all your projects coming in on budget and on time. But I thought where we could start was, you know, right in the beginning of the book, you have some very honest language about the fact that, you know, time marches forward. There's a lot of innovation and culture changing in all the industries. And yet it seems like architecture and construction is holding on to the old ways and is just behind everyone else.
1: Yes. Yeah, and and in fact, I wrote um, Creating a Culture of Predictable Outcomes uh, largely out of frustration. Ten years ago, when I wrote The Owner's Dilemma with John and Yetman, I did so with some optimism. I felt that we had discovered some things at Rice that could move the industry forward, and yet in 2017, Uh, When I read the McKinsey reports, there were a series of McKinsey reports on construction that noted that 90% of the world's infrastructure projects were not meeting schedule goals. More than 60% of the UK's building projects were not meeting budget goals. And uh, large projects across asset classes typically take 20% longer to finish than scheduled and are up up to 80% over budget. It occurred to me that we weren't making any progress at all. Uh, I was struck when I read Stanley McChrystal's book, Team of Teams, that, uh, which is a book about being more nimble, uh, understanding the current uh, environment with dynamic teams. But when I read that book, I recognized that, in fact, in the design and construction industries, we are still enmeshed in, uh, in a, a really a a mindset of war uh, where we are protecting our own interests and our own companies, which is the sensible things to do on many regards, but we're going to war against all of our teammates and we're not getting anywhere. So in the introduction of creating a culture of predictable outcomes, I do talk about the fact that baby boomers have not made progress that we haven't, uh, changed anything significantly in the design and construction industry and that we need to do better
0: and very powerful opening and so I even after all these you know interviews and books I've read I try to always keep an open mind when I read a book I have to admit that when I first picked this up I thought this was going to be more of a manifesto on how to use project delivery method to do better in a project (laughs) and I think you very clearly make a I think you make a very good case that that right there is a failure of the industry that a lot of us are obsessed with what project delivery type can fix the, these problems. The answer being, without spoiling it, it can't.
1: Well, and that is exactly the point. Uh, create a, a, most people are focused obsessively on this idea of a magic process, a silver bullet for solving the problems of the industry. And as I state quite clearly in the book, uh, a lousy team can screw up any any project, any process, any contract. Whereas a terrific team can overcome almost any process or contract. Uh, In fact, uh, I have seen high-performing teams really, do transformational work, create new processes, new, new uh, ways of thinking about projects and coming together that have been uh, incredibly innovative. Now it's not that process isn't important. Delivery processes that are uh, transparent, that support collaboration can make a great team even better. But when we start with process first, we're missing the point. That it is really culture, not process, that creates uh, outcomes that are predictable.
0: Right. Absolutely. And so, you know, we've already kind of hinted at it enough. And so, the, the as I said, I had my own misconception about what the book is. But the reality is there's a clear emphasis on the importance of teams. And, of course, we're going to dive into the concepts of that a little bit. And so if there's the added benefit that there's plenty of case studies and real life stories of architectural projects. The uh, the thing I'd like to hear more elaboration on. I think that makes the architecture industry interesting. Is that maybe more so than any other field? You know, the idea of a good team is not a new concept, but you make the case that in architecture, it's one of the few industries where you are constantly in a new team. I worked <laughs> at a firm for five years. I never I never once worked with the same group of people for more than a few months.
1: So if you'll allow me to back up just a little bit, I'm going to um, talk about what the culture of predictable outcomes is and what the role of teams is in that. So the the major premise of the book is that that a culture of predictable outcomes is a product of of three major components supported by values. So sophisticated, caring leadership, high-performing teams, and master-level decision-making, all supported by a clear understanding of what the values are of that uh, organization or team. What's really new here in the book is uh, first realizing that every element in this uh, model the leadership, the teams, the decision-making, and the values, that they're all critical. And that if you lose one, that, that the outcomes will be corrupted. And the other element that's really new here is that I've done a deep dive into each of these elements that are specifically focused on the design engineering, construction industries, so that we're not dealing with uh, examples or concepts that are appropriate for stable teams, as you brought up, um, but they're appropriate for these dynamic teams. In fact, um, Amy Edmondson from Harvard wrote a great book called Teaming to Innovate, and she talks about uh, teaming versus uh, creating teams. Uh, And so dynamic teams, as you describe, are teams that are changing all the time. And it's not even that you move from project to project, but as you've experienced, sometimes your teams will change during a project. So I've worked on projects that have lasted four, five, six years. And of course, the individuals on the teams move in and out. You have to have the ability to communicate values. You have to have the ability to work within the teams. You have to have great leadership in order to um, make dynamic teams work. And in fact, in the leadership section, I talk about how important it is for leaders to give clear direction uh, with the latitude to create and innovate. And I uh, provide an example that is a non-construction example, but it's the, uh, the Chilean mining Uh, disaster that is a great example of a team that was under high stress, had a lot at stake, which we often do in the construction industry, but had a leader that understood that keeping the team on, on task, but also allowing ideas to float freely so that they could problem solve effectively was the right way to approach that leadership challenge. But I also, those dynamic teams also need uh, an environment of psychological safety. Uh, And so I talk a lot in the leadership section about psychological safety, especially within these dynamic teams. Amy Edmondson wrote uh, another great book called The Fearless Organization, which uh, recognizes The the need for teams to identify um, problems uh, and opportunities early to discuss, um, be able to discuss these problems in environments where that are not nice, nice. They're not low performing. In fact, they're extraordinarily high performing environments, uh, but that you make sure that the teams do understand that it is safe to speak up. Uh, and leadership has the greatest impact on creating those kinds of environments. And if you like, I can go on and talk, give a couple of examples uh, in the collaboration uh, and decision-making areas. For instance, um, in collaboration, uh, I am very specific about the skills that are necessary within collaboration for the design and construction industry. It's funny, uh, Brian, that, and I think you will have seen this in your own experience, we don't tend to teach collaboration. We throw our students in, uh, in the architecture schools, I know for sure, onto teams and we say, go collaborate. And yet we don't help them and tell them that uh, they need very specific skills, uh, that they need to practice every single day to uh, to collaborate effectively, to create teams that are truly high-performing. And so I share in this book a set of skills that have been created through my own experience as well as through research that I've done that are specific for the industry and that can help multidisciplined, dynamic teams work well together. If you practice them every single day, Uh, decision, decision decision-making is also critical. And in fact, it's the element that gets forgotten all the time. Did you have a decision-making 101 class in school when you went to school? (laughs) Not at all. No. And so we don't get, that day in school. We don't get the opportunity to consider how critical it is. And yet I write in both the owner's dilemma and in uh, creating a culture of predictable outcomes that without decision-making that is distributed throughout the organization at the best place that decisions can be made with throughout the team, throughout the project, but also extraordinarily timey, uh, timely, extraordinarily timely, uh, that you will fail, especially on design and construction projects. So perhaps for the first time, uh, I've documented the fact that we need to create decision processes, decision frames, uh, and a clear understanding of what decisions are yours and what decisions are not yours and then develop tools that allow people to move forward, even when it's really hard to make a decision. And then finally, uh, on on values, uh, I talk quite a lot about, and and let me pause for a moment. I do use examples in the book uh, that are Construction oriented, and then I l- use a lot of, of sports oriented stories in the book to illustrate specific points. And so uh, I use the Astros uh, to um, illustrate some points about strong leadership, strong uh, collaboration, and strong decision making. But the fact that the Astros team, which uh, was interestingly put on The cover of Sports Illustrated in uh, 2014 when they were losing badly uh, was a team that was just beginning to use uh, the tools of predictable outcomes. Uh, And three years later were uh, World Series champions as predicted by Ben Ryder of Sports Illustrated but then failed later because perhaps they didn't have their values broadly communicated, or at least the values that would make them more sustainable in long-term. I rewrote a section of uh, of this book specifically because I felt that values should carry a more prominent role because leaders cannot be everywhere all the time. It's important to make sure that values are communicated consistently so that everyone on the team can use the values framework that everyone has adopted to make decisions as they move forward. Values can be really incredibly helpful to make sure that you don't go off the rails at a critical moment.
0: And so to kind of follow up on that, you know, you you brought up, of course, the Astros who you know had strong leadership, and then sadly were caught with their sign stealing scandal. And I think there's a case there that it it, it could be it's not just the establishment of values; it's also kind of the accountability aspect of that as well. I, you make the case that you know the Astros did kind of develop this mentality that winning was the most important thing. So yeah, they were cheating, but in their minds, they were accomplishing something they put value into.
1: That's right. I do talk about that uh, in the book of the frame, you know, values can be whatever you want them to be. And it appeared and was actually documented in several articles that there was a win at all cost mindset within the Astros at the time that the sign stealing occurred. And this, and the sign stealing was not the only um, inappropriate behavior that had emerged during this period of time. And so uh, the opinion was that there, there was this mindset of winning at all costs. So the decision is within a team, within leaders, is what are the values that you want represented within your team? Uh, and so I go into the fact that when you're a hospital owner, for example, uh, as right. you develop the design and construction project? How do you want decisions made that are consistent with the way you want your patients treated, the way you want your employees treated? And and how can that manifest itself in how you stage the project, how you design the project, how you ultimately realize the project? And sometimes that will enter into decisions as far as what you invest and how you invest uh, and ha- what people you actually bring onto the project, the quality of individual uh, and their own personal values and, and past experience. Uh, and uh, that makes a huge difference when you're, when you've set your goals and want to reach predictable outcomes.
0: Right. And so I, I want to come back to, you know, you had mentioned predictable. And so there's, there's an entire chapter. And I think the theme of the book, the idea of how powerful predictability is and how many of us sort of accept how unpredictable construction is. And that's why none of us scoff at hearing that 90% of the projects aren't on time and budget. Cause we all think that's normal. Yeah. <laughs> but what I want, you know, one thing that came across a lot, you know, there's, there's quite a few very powerful ideas and strategies And I guess the first thing that always comes to my mind, and I I can't speak for everyone, but when you bring up the idea of, you know, servant leadership, the idea of not being a hero, accepting accountability, and dozens of other examples, sadly, as much as I love the architecture, the first thing that comes to my mind from many other firms I worked at is that is not consistent with, I think, with the culture I think a lot of architects have kind of adopted. You mentioned studio, the idea that we're not taught how to collaborate. Even in studio, I remember when I was a student, it kind of, it's not servant leadership. You know, every time you meet your professor, the project slowly morphs into their project. Then you go into a firm, <laughs> and in my mind, this is
1: a... Right. And, and many, many people don't know what servant leadership is. Um, and so I, I uh, have used uh, people like uh, Robert Greenleaf and John Hennessy from Stanford uh, as a reference uh in talking about servant leadership in short uh servant leadership is when your goal as a leader is to allow do whatever it takes to make your team successful in other words you've taken the focus off of your own success and you've said all right the team needs to be successful what is it that i need to do as i come in to work today in order to make sure that I've removed barriers, made decisions, paid people on time and appropriately, motivated properly, in order to make sure that they can realize uh, their goals and the goals of the projects. Uh, and it's it changes everything when you do that and makes uh and makes the goals of the projects much more achievable. It's a, I thought it was funny that you just uh, brought up Don't Be a Hero. That's one of my favorite uh, stories. I, I originally published a version of it in The Owner's Dile- Dilemma. But it's one of the hardest skills of collaboration is to tell the truth when you're in trouble. So we... We And this is part of a broader culture, not just architecture culture, not just uh, the design and construction industries culture. It's part of a work culture in the United States that is uh, hard to overcome. But I tell the story in The Owner's Dilemma about a very large project. It was, I believe, a $130 million project at the time, a housing project at at Rice. And it had... uh, a terrific architecture firm, terrific uh, con- construction firm on board, strong project managers into, in, internally to Rice and externally on each of these companies. Uh, wonderful project, but I could tell my my spidey sense as I walked around the project was that it was behind schedule, uh, and I think that there are many owners who've been in that position. They know something's wrong, but nobody's talking to them. And so finally I brought the lead, the architecture project manager and the construction project manager into my office. And I just said, okay, something's wrong. We're going to get to the bottom of it. Let's, let's do it. And uh, I kept speaking to them about what I saw and what I was concerned about. And I noticed that the construction project manager's head kept on getting lower and lower. <laughs> and I said, okay, now <laughs> I need you to talk to me. And his head finally came up and he said, we're not getting the, uh, the shop drawings back uh, the submittals back from the architect in a timely fashion. And so it's a bottleneck and it's killing us. And I said, Yahoo, this is great news. And they looked at me like I was crazy. (laughs) Identifying the problem and not being a hero. So what he was doing was he was trying not to make waves. We had made a big deal about teamwork and collaboration and all. And he had been communicating with them that it was a problem, that it was a problem, but he did not. Know what else to do other than to keep asking them for better response. So, I rolled up my sleeves. Our project manager on our team rolled up their sleeves. We looked at the process that was going on. We talked to the architect. We we figured out that there were some bottlenecks in the way that things were being submitted and approved. And even on our side as the owner, uh, we solved the problem and things righted itself. And, but if we don't know that there's a problem, we can't work together as a team to solve that problem. So I, I have taught architects, collaboration classes uh, in the past uh, at the university of Arizona. And this is one of the main ones that I talk about is when things go wrong, even if it's your mistake, don't be quiet about it. Ask for help. Years ago, I, I, recognized that there was a huge problem with the contracts classes that I was being taught within the scope of architecture school versus the classes that I took in my MBA, which.
0: Well, that's interesting. You mentioned teaching that class. You know, I personally think quite a few of the, you know, the really important stuff that you talk about, all of it seems to have a bit of the, uh, of us dropping the ball at the fact that, you know, there is no education for it. You know, you had, you talk about two of two huge misgivings of our industry is, you know, misunderstanding risk and just badly written contracts. And I don't think I have to tell anyone that, you know, nobody learns about that in school. So when you go into practice, you kind of just wing both of that as well.
1: Versus the classes that I was being taught in the context of my MBA, which is, uh, which was contract law. So here's the key difference. The contracts classes within architecture were telling me what to do. And within the context of the MBA, I was being taught how to think about the subjects and the risks and and the ideas of contract law. And so I did write this chapter because I think it is a key, um, I call it contracts and risk, um, and it is a key element to predictable outcomes. We've got to stop letting other people tell us what to do regarding car- contracts and start recognizing that within the contract environment that we're clients as team members and that the contracts should be developed to help us create the team environment, the work environment, the decision environment that we want not to create barriers uh, and, to, and to allow lawyers to litigate more effectively down the line. And so I've, I'm, I'm quite provocative in that chapter. Uh, I haven't gotten any hate mail yet from the legal industry, but, <laughs> but I'm trying hard to, uh, to tell uh, folks in our industry to help give them some thinking points uh, about context, siloed relationships, unintended consequences, um, reversal of roles. And, and I talk about a concept of acting badly. Uh, I, ha- I was sitting in, I was not sitting, I was doing a keynote presentation at a conference uh, a couple of years ago. And I had someone ask me a question that was couched as if, well, the contractor is doing X, Y, and Z in this design-build relationship because the contract lets him do it. And I just want to make sure that everyone listening to this understand, understands that no contract ever made anyone act badly. You choose to do that. We can create contracts that support great behavior. But if you want to act badly, that's up to you. (laughs) And you can't use the contract as an excuse. So I I wrote this chapter to help people in our industry rethink their relationship to the contracts, uh, to risk. Uh, I am very specific about the fact that The definition for risk in our industry is a different definition of risk. Our definition of risk is what we cannot know and what we cannot control. And the reason why that's important is because as soon as you create better, more transparent, collaborative environments, it allows us to know more and control more. So, in fact, when you have a more collaborative relationship with your team members rather than an adversarial warlike relationship with your team members, you reduce risk. It means risk disappears. It's It's not managing risk. It's making risk disappear. And so think about that as you develop your your. Relationships and your contracts, because the ideal situation is to actually reduce risk. Well,
0: that's uh, very great advice, and of course, there's plenty more that we're kind of just skipping and glossing over. There's a lot to cover. Uh, one th- one thing I'd like to say before I go into my closing here is we've been talking, of course, architecture construction. You know, that's what I do. It's you know what you do, but I think that there's also a case to be made that uh, you know a high performing team is necessary in every industry. So. Yes, it's architectural examples, but I do think quite a bit of this can be applied elsewhere as well.
1: May I um, may I mention a couple of things? Um, of course, I do write two additional chapters. Uh, one on uh, research and how critical yes. research is. Uh, in the decision-making chapter, I talk about how important decision-ready information is, uh, and how we are challenged by the fact that rigorous research is not as prevalent in our industry as it needs to be. Uh, And so I talk at length about that in the research chapter. And then I also um, provide a bit of a provocative chapter on disruption, which I Mm -hmm. hope that the next generation will do a better job at embracing the potential (laughs) of uh, innovation for our industry so that we can truly change the way we build uh, and we can truly change the impact that our built environment has on on the environment, on climate change. Uh, There are, I pack numbers in this book about the impact of waste, the impact of carbon, Uh, on Mm -hmm. our industry. And uh, it'll be research and uh, disruptive uh, changes in the way we deliver that will be the answer to those questions. But without a culture of predictable outcomes first, we will never have the teams that can truly innovate and accept some of the changes that need to be accepted.
0: Right. Well, great. Thank you so much for that. So as we kind of close, I I always ask, you know, what have you been working on since the book's been published? You've already hinted at that you've retired, but what project would be occupying your time now?
1: Well, uh, I've retired from the university environment, but I'm still consulting and writing about change. And uh, I'm exploring ways to communicate and interact with our new generation of builders, designers, and engineers. I'm trying to develop oh. blogs. I'm trying to reach out on podcasts. Uh, it's been suggested that I develop a YouTube channel. I'm gonna. I'm trying to de- develop one on lessons learned, which I think would be fun. Very
0: interesting.
1: Uh, yes, and, of course. Uh, and see if I can uh, do more in within my consulting to support teams to be uh, successful. Uh, so I work with design intelligence, uh, doing, uh, with their strategic advisors and, uh, uh-huh. and try hard to help, uh, teams and organizations and businesses within our industry do better.
0: That's uh, quite a tall order.
1: <laughs> it's fun. Uh, very these, exciting. Are, these are fun and exciting <laughs> times.
0: Absolutely. Very exciting. Hopefully we can, uh, maybe we could talk again someday about some of those efforts.
1: Well, thank you. I would like that.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for, for being here with me today.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Oh, same here. And for everyone listening, the book is Creating a Culture of Predictable Outcomes, a Leadership, Collaboration, and Decision-Making of Architecture and Construction. To all my listeners, thank you very much and have a great day.